Hi, everybody. Welcome to the April 24th, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on Robert Malone turning down the CEO job offer from Connect for Health Colorado last week. Malone's decision comes on the heels of a legislative committee voting to increase its influence on the CEO position. Patty Calhoun from Westward, what did you think of, was this because of what the legislature did, or is this simply a person deciding to pass on a job for a, a, a organization that's had some pretty difficult times? Well, and let's not forget the excuse that his family didn't want to relocate here to Colorado, because who would want to live in Colorado compared <laughs> to, say, New York? No nice lifestyle, no beautiful scenery. Uh, it was a little, uh, there were several things that were suspicious here. One, that he was the only finalist, so there's no backup plan. And two, that the timing of him refusing the gig came right after the fact that maybe it wasn't going to be such a delightful gig after all. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, what did you make of the announcement? Is the legislature stepping in a little bit too far? What, it's, it's a continuing disaster, this thing, ever, you know, from, from day one. The legislature, I don't think, would have approved it if they knew how it was going to turn out. And the blame goes not only to Governor Hickenlooper for signing uh, the creation of this and for the miserable administration of it since then, but also to then-Majority uh, Leader Amy Stevens, the Republican from Colorado Springs, who pushed this through. We don't have to have one of these. It's not, it's not mandatory under Obamacare. And it's another good example of when government expands so fast and takes on too many new things at a time when it's not even doing its core jobs well, uh, inevitably uh, you get uh, screw-ups like this. Ed Seeler from the Denver Business Journal, you are our man at the Capitol. Uh, what do you think about all this? Well, I mean, I, I really do think this probably did have something to do with it. I mean, they, they, I was at the meeting where they said, okay, we're going we're gonna to have some more oversight into your hiring. Uh, this is what the legislative committee told the Connect for Health board. Uh, the Connect for Health board then later that day released a statement saying they have a finalist. That, that seemed pretty bad timing to start with. Like maybe you might have mentioned even at that meeting, okay, you can do this, but by the way, we have a finalist. Um, that, of course, just set a divide up. And, and if I were Mr. Malone, I would have probably looked at this too and said, um, boy, this, this doesn't look like a great situation. But I will also say that when you spend hundreds of millions of dollars setting up a, uh, a quasi-governmental entity like this exchange is, you should expect that if you're going to be the CEO of it, you're going to come under a lot of public scrutiny, especially during the first years. I disagree with Dave. I don't think it's a disaster. I think some things have gone wrong, but I think they've also been able to use this to get 140,000 people insurance as well, and businesses still support it, even if a bit more tepidly than they once did. Um, but uh, but I, hopefully the next CEO finalist will know there's going to be a lot of light shining on them. Pantate, Attorney Greenberg Charbig, longtime state lawmaker, wrap it up for us. You know, I support Connect for Health. I agree with Ed. I think it's been uh, beneficial to the state. But clearly what I think happened here is the board mishandled the situation. And the, the prospective CEO probably saw that his biggest obstacle was going to be he has a board that's politically out of touch with how they need to, to work and coordinate with the state government, particularly the legislature. They're a quasi-governmental entity. And he just said, I, I, I'm just not signing up for this. If the board can't get my hiring straight, what else can't they get straight? And it's unfortunate. It was a fumble that wasn't necessary. 
Governor John Hickelooper, along with former governors Roy Romer and Bill Owens, publicly addressed and supported standardized testing in Colorado this week. The three governors are at odds with wings of both parties who support Senate Bill 223, which would prohibit penalties for those who opt out of testing. Patty, the whole idea of standardized testing has become a huge issue this year, and I guess it's a little surprising to me seeing the bipartisanship on one side with Governors Roy Romer and Bill Owens supporting Governor Hickenlooper, and then Republicans and teachers unions coming together in the legislature supporting this. Uh, what did you make of it? Well, certainly politics makes strange bedfellows. We know that. But the strangest combo, no one wants to get under the sheets with this group, the teachers union and the very, very conservative right-wing part of the party have been aligned together on this whole teach the testing issue all years at the legislature. It's been the strangest combination I've, we've seen in a long time. So then to bring, it was kind of refreshing to see, oh, you can have Republicans and Democrats also playing nice together more in the middle zone, which was seeing Romer and Owens up there. Also seeing that Romer, we should all be drinking from his fountain of youth. He just has a lot of vigor. He certainly knows education. They came out, they gave everyone a textbook lesson in how you could actually come to some agreement that's for the good of the kids. And I do think some of the things now going through the legislature looks like the more reasonable testing limit bill will go through. There's certainly going to be some Hail Marys at the end, but it was a, it was a good lesson yesterday. David, were you surprised that there at least there's this tentative uh, uh, working together relationship between teachers unions and and pretty conservative Republicans on this issue, and and really could it last beyond or on could it last on on this particular issue? Yeah, I think it will continue to last on 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 this issue. These three governors of very different political persuasions all have very strong records as education reformers back to the early in the, uh, uh, the 90s when Roy Romer was the guy who signed the Charter Schools Bill uh, to create those and, and many, many, many other accomplishments. Uh, they correctly recognized that when you were running a huge enterprise, whether you call that the enterprise is the, uh, the Denver School District or the, the statewide program, where, because it's our state taxes that mostly fund the schools, you need some measures to see how well the thing is working. Now, do you have to test 11th graders in social studies? No, not necessarily. But do you need a baseline to say, how well are kids learning to read year to year? Before these tests came in, we had, when, when my wife and I moved back to Denver, my wife, one of the th things she did as a volunteer was uh, literacy tutoring. And the guy she tutored was a graduate of Manual High School who was illiterate. Now that's a failed system where you can have 12 years of public education and not teach a guy how to read. The purpose of testing is to find out how well you're doing at that. And of course the, the, the teachers unions don't want any accountability uh, for how well they're teaching and they're, they're right to say that the teacher isn't the only influence, the, the kid, student's motivation, family circumstances, all of that come into effect. But you, if the job is education, you need to have some concrete measures of how well education is working. So the whole thing of like, oh, I'm going to opt my kid out of this, I hate high-stakes testing. Well, it's not high-stakes for the kid. The kid doesn't get kicked out of school if you find out he's illiterate, but you do, then, maybe, then you know it's time to get that kid some help. It may, it's high-stakes for the teachers, but that, that is real life. You know, you want to be admitted to the bar, you have to pass an exam. You want to be a doctor, you pass an exam. There's lots of real-life things where you better perform in a high-stakes scenario, and it is irresponsible 
to run a multi-billion dollar education system without a good, solid way to measure the outcomes. And there's been a lot of development on this. There's been various bills. But what was the reaction from the Capitol, uh, at the Capitol, to these three governors coming together in a pretty public forum in response to some, at least some of the bills? I don't know that there was a ton of reaction. I mean, you just look at the, the Senate bill that we're talking about here, um, uh, the, the one that basically gives districts cover when their students opt out. I mean, that passed 28 to 7. That is a veto-proof majority right there. Um, now, the trick is going to be, what is it going to come out of the House as? Um, I, I, I think, and I, I've seen this more and more, the legislature seems to act as a uh, body not of the state government, but as the state government. And I say that in the sense that I don't think a lot of people worry so much about what the governor is saying in, in some of these issues. I mean, in case in point, this is a little bit of a diversion, but the governor comes out with a plan two weeks ago to increase road funding and education funding by pulling the hospital provider fee out of the budget, and we are hearing crickets as far as a bill to be introduced regarding that. Um, so uh, I think the question is not what the governor, what the legislature thinks of these governors saying it, but what the legislature thinks, period. Um, just today, uh, the House passed a more moderate uh, testing rollback, and, I, and they rejected a couple of amendments that would have gone further than this bill does. I think that may be an indication um, that they may not be as gung-ho as uh, the forces on the left and the right were in the Senate uh, to, to go farther with this. Uh, and, and I think that, though, will be the reason you may not see uh, Senate Bill 223 enacted into law more so than even three governors coming out and saying, please don't pass this. Hmm. Penn, you've had experience uh, as a lawmaker. Is it influential when you see a governor come out with another two former governors making a pretty strong stance on an issue like this? No. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and here's why. Yeah. You know, what, what, what really... Uh, I, I think the the more important thing is that there is huge bipartisan support for changing something. And I believe the reason is is that all three governors whom I respect greatly have been reformers when it comes to public education, but not all reform is good. And what legislators have heard since CSTES app, which first introduced, which I opposed, was that too many districts and teachers and school systems are teaching kids to the test, but not necessarily imparting the education they'll need to be functionally literate in society. And over time, at both the federal and state level, more and more testing requirements have been imposed. And the, we've gotten to the point where you spend too much time teaching to take a test rather than teaching to live a life. We do have systems of accountability, and if school systems need to be reformed, they need to be reformed such that grades mean something. And I mean grades for pupils and individual students, not grades for schools or neighborhoods. Uh, as legislators, w what we often got that governors don't always get is, all of us have schools within our district. All of us have teachers within our district. Governors don't get accosted in aisle 13 of the grocery store by teachers saying what you're doing is crazy, but legislators do. So this is something they're very close to. They've heard for years that this is a problem, and they have finally said enough is enough. We need to roll back some of these testing mandates and get to a reasonable point where we can use some testing to see where we are, but we've got to let grades mean something also. A controversial fetal homicide bill gained initial approval in the state Senate Judiciary Committee this week. Republicans drafted the bill in response to the recent assault of a Longmont woman, but opponents refer to it as a vague approach to the personhood issue. 
David, Colorado is one of a few states that doesn't have a law like this, but I'm not sure if this one has much hope to get through the House. What do you think? Well, probably not. Probably Speaker Hollinghorst will sell it, send it to the Kill Committee, which is especially aptly named in, in this circumstance. Kudos to John Tomasek of the Colorado Independent, who I think has done the, the most in-depth reporting on the, the substance of this. The opponents have all these scenarios of how it's going to lead to the prosecution of pregnant women. Uh, in fact, they, they pulled out a, although they had trouble coming up with specifics, as he explained in, when, they, when they testified, there was a study that, that just came out uh, by the National Advocates for Pregnant Women group called, and they talked about the prosecution of pregnant women in many states over the last 40 years. And so I, I looked at the report, and they're, in their executive summary, they've got their, sort of, their 12 biggest horror stories that they, they lead with. You look at those, all of them are specifically excluded by this bill. It is very carefully written. I've read the bill. Nothing the mother does can lead to a criminal prosecution. Period. It's not just going getting an abortion. It's anything. You know, you, you drink all the time, and the the kid dies of alcohol poisoning. You know, in in utero, can't possibly be prosecuted under this. So I, I think the opposition is at base much less about the actual text of this very carefully and narrowly written bill, but it is against the putting into law the concept that a baby in the womb is a person. That there's a, you know, that it's when you lose your appendix, uh, nobody dies <laughs> if it's done properly. Uh, but when a baby dies in utero, somebody died. And they cannot accept, the, the, the pro-abortion ultras cannot accept that concept being expressed in the law, even when done in a way that absolutely protects abortion providers, pregnant women from any possible prosecution. Ed, what's the, I guess, your prognosis of this bill at the Capitol? Is it uh, going nowhere in the House? I would have a hard time seeing this going uh, anywhere, despite the fact that liberal activists around the Capitol, those that are not directly involved with uh, the abortion issue, uh, will say uh, behind closed doors, they really should pass this. This is going to look bad if they kill this. Uh, you look at the Democratic base of the Capitol right now. And, and you have to ask yourself, who are their biggest supporters? And the pro-choice advocates are not the biggest funders for the Democrats. That's still unions. But they are, in many ways, in this age of social media, the loudest advocates for the Democrats. Now, I, I would say, just as someone sitting back and analyzing an election, maybe you should look at the 2014 race, where Mark Udall made it all about abortion rights. And that didn't work very well. But I still think that Democrats believe this is too important. They do not want to alienate this major base. Um, and they are going to continue to point out at every given uh, point uh, how this could compare to personhood. Whether there's somebody that flips at the last minute, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but right now, I wouldn't say that this is a good likelihood of passing. Penn, is there a risk for Democrats who oppose this in the House right now? 
Oh, I don't think there's a risk for Democrats to oppose this. I, I do think one thing that may happen is, uh, as the bill is written now, I, I think what draws the objection is it, it has a provision that says that life begins at conception, which is what some of the, the pro-choice advocates point at and say this is the problem. If they can figure out a way to tinker with that aspect of the bill, um, they, that the House may, may get through it. Uh, otherwise, I think it'll go to state affairs and it'll receive the fate that was intended for it, it'll, it'll be postponed indefinitely there. Patty, do you think there's uh, more motivation to actually tweak the bill and make it passable, or would Republicans rather see Democrats go ahead and kill this bill and have that as an election, election issue next year? Oh, I'm sure Republicans would rather see it killed than tweaked to a way that removes that statement. You know, this is a bill, it's not like there are people running around the state cutting babies out of wombs right now. It's not, this is a bill, you understand where it's coming from, but there are plenty of things you can be charged with if you commit this heinous crime. It's really not the most important thing going through the legislature, but it will become one of the most important. It touches on personhood and one of the flashpoints of all discussion. Urban development was a big topic of the legislature this week. A bill that would address a section of Colorado's construction defects law was sent to the House Kill Committee. Meanwhile, a proposal that would require cities to secure voter approval before using blighted status to redevelop agricultural land is also expected soon. Ed, you've written about both of these topics and uh, all these different kind of issues at the Capitol. Give us the update. Well, we've got a hearing coming up Monday on the construction defects reform bill. This is uh, for, for those who may not know it and live it and suck it in like it's oxygen like I do every day. Um, uh, this is a bill that would make it harder for small groups of residents within condos uh, to file class action lawsuits uh, to fix purported construction defects. It would, it would make them get, for example, 50% of all residents to back a, uh, uh, a suit instead of 50% of the plus of the board members. Um, this is going to the Kill Committee on Monday, and there are a few people who have a lot of hope that this is going to come out. And I'm going to go back to what I mentioned the last time around in terms of funders of, of things. Uh, it's a really interesting um, look at where money is going to speak in politics here. The committee it's going to uh, has uh, the six Democrats have received more than 11,000 combined from the Trial Lawyers Association in the last election cycle. Uh, meet, which is the third largest uh, per capita amount of any committee in the uh, in, in the House. I did my research on that. Um, uh, meanwhile, 15 different groups who back this uh, bill have funded uh, either Republicans or in some cases Republicans and Democrats on this committee. So it's really a curious mix of where money is going to speak in this case. Um, I think the coalition is a broad-based one uh, that they've put together, looping in both uh, builders and housing advocates is not something you see too often. Um, I think it will come down to the central question, if any Democrats are going to flip, of believing that this is the step that is needed to increase what is basically a non-existent new affordable condo market uh, over the idea that this will take away legal rights. Uh, real quick, touching on the other one, that also is a flashpoint. It's, it's described as an agricultural TIF bill. Uh, others call it the anti-Gaylord bill uh, because this is a bill that, if enacted, would in all could go in and put another obstacle up uh, to the building of the 1,500-room Gaylord Rockies Hotel out in Aurora. That's going to be a more interesting. It's not going to be a party fight. That's going to be all about the Aurora delegation fighting back against people who don't like uh, the subsidies they're getting from the state in many ways. And that bill has yet to be introduced, but is expected to be coming very soon.
Uh, Penn, is this uh, a proposal that will affect agricultural blighted land and attack on Aurora? I, I think clearly it is. It's, it's, it's an example of a bill that, that bad facts lead to bad law. You may, I mean, you may be opposed to the subsidies that Aurora and the state are providing to the project, but the way to deal with that is to deal with how the subsidies were awarded, not to change state law on all potential TIF deals with, with regard to agriculture land. On the other um, bill, the construction defects bill, I think that's pretty interesting uh, because, uh, as Ed pointed out, there is a legitimate argument that what this constitutes is the deprivation of property rights. You're basically telling condo owners who are in place how you can or cannot protect yourself if, if there's shoddy construction in your place. But the fundamental problem I have with the construction defects legislation is you've got all of these metro area mayors and, and other folks saying, we need this for affordable housing. The bill's got nothing to do with affordable housing construction. And in my experience with developers, they have a right to make as much money as they can, but I've rarely seen a developer who will build affordable units when they can build market rate units and make more money. And this bill won't change that economic dynamic out in, in, in um, the, the um, development area. Patty, were you surprised to see the various fights on this development issue? I was shocked. Uh, <laughs> we talked about this what, last year. We talked about it this year. We, at the very start of this session, we knew this was going to be one of the big issues. It's talked about at seminars around town. People who are going out there trying to find anywhere to rent, they can't afford it. They can't afford to buy because there's nothing to buy. Uh, unfortunately, the affordable housing, as Penn says, this, even if passed, this really wouldn't change that. But it might make the market change a little bit so that people can actually buy some housing. But there, it doesn't look like anyone's going to come up with a reasonable compromise on this. And after all the talk and five months, it's too bad. David, what do you think? Well, of course, when you sub increase the supply of something, the price tends to go down. So if you're building at the market rate, adding to the supply brings down the, the market price. It's preposterous that agricultural land could ever be condemned as blighted. This blight, that, that was, came from urban renewal where you say, oh, Larimer Square is, is skid row, so we're going to kick all the bums out and take over people's property and, and develop it as a, into a, a little tourist trap. That's what it was meant for. There is no, it's been so abused. Parts of Vail have been condemned as blighted as a pretext for the government to take the property from one owner and give it to somebody else. It's ridiculous that agricultural land could ever be considered blighted unless actual the fungal corn blight is present there. <laughs> I want to get a quick take on this one. With just 10 days before Denver's municipal election, let's get a quick take on how the races are lining up. Mayor Michael Hancock, who is not facing any well-funded opposition, released TV ads this week, and the city council district races continue to be fought bitterly. Penn. Uh, because there is no mayoral race, you wouldn't know that there are any other races going on unless you live in one of the councilmanic districts that has seven or eight people running for it. Um, we'll, we're going to see some interesting runoffs at the council race level, um, but it's unfortunate because no one's really covering the municipal elections this cycle. Patty, any surprises? Yes, that Michael Hancock um, is pro-Denver, and he thinks he's going to win. But he's driving that little smart car. Remember, he wasn't in a smart car four years ago. I, I live in District 1, and that is an ugly fight right now. I like to see Mayor Hancock trying to park the smart car right. somewhere. Where you don't have to pay for parking. Let's <laughs> exactly. remember that. David, your quick take. It, it's impressive how he's gotten, he got elected because he made a big deal about how he drives his kid to school every morning, and now his re-election is he drives a smart car. <laughs>
<laughs> and wrap it up for us. I think the most interesting thing to watch for is the at-large race where one of the candidates, Kayvon Calatravi, has come up through the retail marijuana world. Um, and people say, oh, this is a race where, you know, the incumbents are going to stick in. Actually, one of the incumbents won with 22% of the vote in that total race in 2011. That's Robin Knich. I think Calatravi, the way he's paying into this, could get that, could unseat one of the two incumbents, and could really be an interesting voice on council. Should be fun to watch. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Patty, as always, start us off. You know, it may not be the world's biggest disgrace, but it is sure amusing. Glenn, Glenn Pladson, who has had an excess of books at his home and decided to, he couldn't sell them on eBay. You know, if you can't do that, the solution is not to throw them out the window as you're driving down the highway <laughs> so that the, the Colorado Department Transportation Department has to clean them up, but that's what they've been doing for the last year until finally we found out who the culprit was. He just hasn't this man heard of recycling library donations? Yeah, see, I couldn't. I see, I picked up over a thousand books from this guy, David. Senator Rand Paul. He is the source of Dudley's Dudley Brown's ill-gotten money because Rand did a series of mass mailings to people of. Fight, help fight United Nations gun control, which is certainly something I strongly agree with. And then, but he says, help fight UN gun control by giving money to Dudley, who does nothing about UN gun control to actually fight it. He has nobody at the UN, unlike the National Rifle Association and the Second Amendment Foundation, which have people who go to the UN meetings and conferences and do fight UN gun control. Dudley just takes the money, but there's no fighting going on by Dudley at the United Nations. Ed. The Algerian terror suspect who was arrested in France this week, luckily before he carried out his plans to shoot up a nearby church. And how was he uh, arrested? Because he shot himself in the leg, called an ambulance, and somehow the ambulance drivers and police were then able to trace a trail of blood back from where he was standing waiting for the ambulance to a car full of guns and ammunition where he was going to shoot a church up in. I just wish all terror suspects were this dumb. <laughs> you and me both, Ben. You know, he ran for office saying he was a new brand of politician who was going to cross the aisles and make things work. And if that's the case, I don't understand why Senator Cory Gardner voted against the confirmation of Loretta Lynch for attorney general. Say something nice about somebody. Patty. Well, of course, no one's watching this show tonight because they're all watching the Bruce Jenner interview. <laughs> but Channel 12's own Eden Lane, who did a really nice interview on CNN about the transgender issue. Here, here. David. The Colorado Statesman weekly political newspaper, which keeps getting better and better, and as the, po the Rockies gone and the Post is shrinking, it's becoming an especially vital source for news about the legislature. Ed. There are only two weeks left to see the 1968 exhibit at the Colorado History Center. This is a fascinating uh, exhibit of a, a great time period in history. I would recommend anyone get down there uh, at the Ken. Penn. Sullivan's, a great downtown spot to listen to jazz for so many years and have a nice steak is closing in May because they've lost their lease. They will be missed. That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Remember that if you miss any part of the show or want to catch our web-exclusive segment, CIO Postgame, check out CPT12.org or YouTube. Also be sure to check out the CIO podcast on iTunes. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks very much for watching. Good night. Mm -hmm.